I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Bree Pettis, the co-founder of MakerBot Industries, a company that makes three-dimensional printers. So instead of producing ink on paper, the machine makes actual objects made out of plastic. Bree started the company in 2009 with his partners Zach Hokensmith and Adam Mayer. Prior to starting MakerBot, Bree was a public elementary school teacher in Seattle, Washington, a puppeteer and an artist. He also is one of the founders of NYC Resistor, a hacker collective located in Brooklyn. Bree's also a video podcast producer, TV host, and father. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. What is MakerBot? So a MakerBot is a machine that can make you anything. It's a replicator. So let's say you want something, you can imagine it and design it, or maybe somebody else has made it and you can download it, and then you just print it out. So say you need a bottle opener, you just print one out, and then you're opening bottles. It's made out of plastic that feels kind of like Legos. What kind of plastic is it? Well, there's two kinds of plastic you can use in a MakerBot right now, and we're exploring more. We're looking for more things to print with. But you can use ABS or PLA. ABS is a really common plastic. It's what most of the plastic you have in your life is made out of. It's like the, it's the same thing that Lego's made out of. PLA is another plastic we use, and it's made from corn, and it is biodegradable, and when you make things out of it, it smells like waffles. 3D printers have been around for decades, but they are very expensive and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and huge, but your printers cost roughly $1,300. What was the impetus for wanting to create a cheaper 3D printer? Well, we really wanted one, and they were really expensive. And so we just used the materials we had at hand and the tools we had at hand. We, had a, we have a laser cutter that we share, and we just kept trying. So we locked ourselves up in our hackerspace with literally two cases of ramen and a lot of uh, club mate, which is a caffeinated beverage. And we basically just camped out there making prototype after prototype. And we'd been working all through the night for days. What was the first object you made with your 3D printer when oh, we, it finally worked? Oh, we promptly printed out a shot glass and, and had drinks. You promptly printed out a shot glass and then hopped on a plane to South by Southwest, which is a leading <laughs> technology innovative conference in Austin. What did South by Southwest lead to, if anything, for you? Well, you know, we had, we had made... 20 kits for people to have their own 3D printer. And we thought, okay, we'll sell 10, and then we'll have 10 to sell next month. And then, of course, we sold those, like, really quickly. Like, within two weeks, we had sold out of the thing we thought would take two months to sell. So the race was on. Who buys these 3D machines? You know, uh, the people who buy 3D printers are real mix, because you've got some, you know, you've got the obvious kind of engineers, hackers, programmer types that, that get them. And then you've got just ordinary people who live in the future who, who want to have a machine that can make anything so that when they need something, they don't have to go to the store. They can just print it out and have it. It takes a little while for you to kind of get your hands around exactly what it is we're talking about. Uh, maybe it's my failure of imagination, but it took me some time to actually understand, okay, well, this, this is a printer not producing ink, but actually making stuff. Yeah, it's a replicator. It replicates your ideas in, into real objects. It it makes things, your ideas, real. And, you know, we're used to being consumers. We're used to, you know, if we want a clock, we go. We know, we think, okay, well, where do I go shop for that? Mm-hmm. When you have a MakerBot, the world's different. You see the world through MakerBot glasses. You can actually print out glasses. But when you, you have a MakerBot, you think, okay, I need a clock. 
well, maybe I'll make her bot one. And in fact, a group of, of folks actually did collaborate and they made a grandfather clock mechanism that's just beautiful and ticks and everything. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Bree Pettis, the co-founder of MakerBot Industries, a company that makes open source robots that make plastic objects. You grew up in Ithaca, New York, and then moved to Seattle, Washington. What was your home life like? What did your parents do, for example? Um, you know, my my dad is... Um He's a marketer. He, his, his, his website is brand.com, so he's been doing it for a while. And uh, my mom does a bunch of stuff, including art. How did you become interested in, in making things or tinkering? Do you remember, do you have early experiences of just being very hands-on? You know, I got into tinkering when I went to go visit my Aunt Meredith, who at that time was married to a guy named Joe. And Joe, his job was every morning he'd wake up and I'd get into his pickup truck with him at like four in the morning in Boston. He knew all the trash routes. Mm. And we'd go on the trash routes before the trash men came. And we'd pick out all the good stuff. And then during the week, during the day, he would fix that stuff up and on the weekend sell it at a flea market. Mm. And that week, we picked up a couple bikes that were broken and put them together. And he made me feel like I knew, like he let me put things together and figure out how it worked so that at the end, it was really my bike. I I'd put that bike together, even though I was like seven. By the way, where does the name Brie come from? So my name Brie is, is, is short for Brie Huspity, and it comes from my parents who were hippies at the time. Their, their yogi gave me that name. Your parents were not in the technology field at all, but your grandfather was. He also made machines. What, what kind of work did he do? So my grandpa had a company called High Speed, High Speed Checkwear in Ithaca. His company made machines that would weigh things really quickly. So when Morton Salt comes down the production line in long lines of circular tubes, his machine would be on the on the line, and it would quickly weigh things. And if it was, there wasn't enough salt in one of the containers, it would knock it off. So he made machines that would weigh things at a high high speed. When you were growing up in Seattle, you know, Bill Gates, Microsoft was 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 pretty big. Did did that have any impact on on your you know your your thinking at all? You know, Microsoft is something I had friends whose whose parents worked at Microsoft and. Bill Gates moved into the neighborhood. And I don't know so much if, like, if, you know, one of the thing, one of the things that did affect me is I had a friend who worked at Nintendo. And Paul Scavlin had a job where his job was to play games all day. He was a tester, and then later on he was a game counselor, because back in those days you could call, if you didn't mind paying long distance, you could call up Nintendo and talk to somebody and be like, I can't get through this level. And they'd be like, go find the magic hammer and hit it this wall with it, mm-hmm, that kind mm-hmm, of thing. And that mm-hmm. was his job. And I remember thinking, oh, that's such a, you know, some, that's, that's a job that somebody does. Like, that exists in the world. Like, mm-hmm. there's not just, like, you're going to be a doctor or a nurse or a farmer or something like this. There's people who play games for a living. I thought, okay, anything can happen. How much was the, 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 the notion of you're having to make a living, how large did that loom in your career choices, for example? For me, I've, in terms of my career, I've always felt really strongly to, you know, follow my heart. I read, you know, the whole Joseph Campbell Power of Myth series and was very inspired to, to follow my passion. And so you don't go into teaching to make money. I think after seven years, I was making about $31,000 a year. And, but I was there because I wanted to create infrastructure for people to, to make things, to learn how to be, to be creative. 
And that's been a thread through my whole life, the idea of creating infrastructure for people to be creative and being creative. You've been a public school teacher, but what was your own education like? You know, uh, it was mixed. I mean, I dropped out of middle school because I, I just didn't want to go, and I was, getting, I was having to face bullies and get into fights all the time. So I just dropped out of seventh grade and, um, and was happy to do so. And then, you know, later on, I realized, like, okay, school, fine. I see how this works. I have to do this to make other things happen. Basically, I kind of got back into school when I was, like, a sophomore, and I realized, okay, okay, I'll jump through the hoops to see if to make sure I can make something else happen. And then I got lucky, and I ended up get, going to the Evergreen State College, which is one of as a liberal arts college in Olympia, Washington, where there are no requirements except that you have to have X amount of credits before you can graduate. So you can study every anything. I studied everything from political science and history to education and ethnomusicology and mythology and psychology and ended up doing dance for two years and being in a samba band and playing gamelan. And so I was able to just continually explore different kinds of things and try different things out. You talk about dropping out of, of school in seventh grade. So you're 12 years old. What, what, is, what does that mean? Like you wake up in the morning and, and, and what do you do? You know, um, as a kid, when you uh, go to school and, and you're the, you know, the first six months of school are full of intimidation and bullying, you just find a way to not go. You just wake up and you think, I'm not going. Where'd you go? What'd you do? Uh, I just stayed at home and read books. And what did your parents say? It didn't matter. I wasn't going. But what did they say? I don't remember. So well, they they didn't have much choice. No, I wasn't going. What was the experience like for you of being an elementary school teacher uh, in the public system, public school system in Seattle? Was it th- as you know creative as 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 you had hoped? As a teacher, I was te- I, I got to be the art teacher, which is one of the last places you can you can you're actually not bound by teaching to the test in American public schools, and so I got to teach kids how to make things, how to sew a button. Most kids don't know how to sew a button onto a, on if they lose a button, they don't know how to put it back. So there's kind of basic skills like that that are really satisfying and make kid, young people feel really independent. But the in, the bureaucracy and the underfundedness of schools these days means that really there's not enough resources to do uh, do to to be effective as a teacher and with 32 kids in a classroom it eventually wears you down after being a school teacher for seven years I can honestly say like if you can drop out of school if you if you if you have if you if you're somebody who can f- follow your passion and try things out and develop infrastructure for yourself if you have that kind of discipline, Find other ways to, to learn things. So here you were, a frustrated uh, art teacher, and you said, okay, I'm going to move to Brooklyn. Talk to me about that moment. So there were a couple things that happened. I had come to New York on vacation, and I, I had seen some video art at an art gallery. And I said, this is neat. I want one. How much is this artwork? And they said, well, the DVD is $15,000. And I had that kind of like Picasso moment of like, yeah, I could do that. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I made a video and that was an art video uh, called the I Love You Project. And I took it around to galleries in Seattle and I said, here's my video. I'm ready to display it. And they all liked it, but 
after you know a month or two, it had been seen by like four people and nothing had happened. So I was like, screw this, I'm putting it on the internet. And sure enough, after like a few months, like 50,000 people had watched it. And I was like, okay, that's more than Phil's Man- Mariner's Stadium, you know? <laughs> but I like this. I like this kind of attention. So I started making more videos. I made videos for my students. Next thing you know, I'm making videos for Make Magazine. Then, then I moved to New York, and where I continued to work on making videos for Make Magazine, worked for Etsy for a bit, and then quit that to start MakerBot. Etsy being the online marketplace for handmade items. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Bree Pettis, the co-founder of MakerBot. We'll hear more from Bree coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Bree Pettis, the co-founder of MakerBot Industries, a company that makes three-dimensional printers. So instead of producing ink on paper, the machine makes actual objects made out of plastic. Bree started the company in 2009 with his partners Zach Hokensmith and Adam Mayer. Prior to starting MakerBot, Bree was a public elementary school teacher in Seattle, Washington, a puppeteer and an artist. He also is one of the founders of NYC Resistor, a hacker collective located in Brooklyn. You've been willing to expose yourself, your private life to some extent, um, publicly using the internet. And you've been blogging since 2004. And I'd love for you to read one of your blogs from 2004. (laughs) Uh, It's entitled Dream. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're laughing. Why are you laughing? Uh, 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 you, you got you. You've okay. So uh, here we go. So I've been blogging for a long time. I actually had a blog in '99, but it was anonymous, and I ended up erasing it. It's this idea of sharing what you're thinking. Okay. And then I got at one point in 2004, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna share everything, including my dreams. So I just woke up from a dream that involved going to the transmission shop driving to a farm owned by my brother, enjoying the farm and then falling from a pulley cable slide. My brother was played by Tom Hanks, and when I fell, I began screaming incoherently, and I was paralyzed with a plastic sword in each hand. Even though I was screaming inside, I knew the tragedy because I would die and I would miss out on marrying the love of my life, and I would miss my brother and all the things I I want to do would never be done. Tom Hanks carried me through three feet deep of water, and I was still screaming in my dream as I woke up. My dream reflected a few things to me. First of all, I love my brother, and I love having a brother. Secondly, I touched on a deep sadness in me. I've experienced loss, and I can touch that sadness in myself. I've been having a lot of dreams lately. feels like a time of change in my life. My modus operandi has been to go with the flow and accept the events and things that come to me in life and nurture those opportunities. I've changed a little now in that I am searching to build something. I'm searching for a path that I can set out on. No more hitchhiking through life. I want to drive my own train. How do you feel reading that now? You know, one of the nice things about having a blog is that you're leaving, you, you leave breadcrumbs for yourself to say like, okay, this is where I'm at now. And so I can see then in 2004, I wanted to start making things happen more. I wanted to be like, okay, let's do things. You know, I think this is a little bit of a moment where you can see like, okay, I wanted something, but I didn't know what. It took me a few years to get to a place where I'm really, where I'm quite happy with driving things. You talk about being deeply sad. What made you deeply sad at that point in your life? I don't know, actually. 
not sure. What is your feeling about, you know, sharing your personal life and, and uh, you know, yeah. So when I first started making videos, I was video blogger like number 13 in this early crew of video bloggers. And I was making videos for my students and I was making personal videos and I was sharing them. And it, we, it, we grew this community of like 25 or 30 people. And we were just making videos that were like, let me show you my apartment. Mm-hmm. And people weren't doing this at the time. So it felt like, okay, we're in this club of people who are sharing, you know, look at what my cat did today. And <laughs> it sounds kind of silly to say today because YouTube is just absurd, really full of this kind of stuff. But back then, it really felt like we're breaking new ground. We're finding new ways to share. And sharing is really important to me. It's one of those things where, uh, you know, if you are not somebody who shares, you should be because there's a future out there that is sadder if you don't. Uh, we're in a nice time where, where just in the past few years, sharing has become something that has value. You know, and even if you just share stories about how you dealt with something or how you, uh, how you, you know, how you got your baby to sleep at night or whatever, it means you're leaving breadcrumbs for other people so they won't feel as alone, so that when they go to learn how to do something, they can build on what you did and take it to the next level. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Bree Pettis, the co-founder of MakerBot Industries, a company that makes three-dimensional printers that produce plastic objects. You moved to Brooklyn in 2007, and prior to starting MakerBot, you were one of the creators of NYC Resistor, which is a hacker collective, uh, which allows people to tinker with software and technology. But the word hacker kind of has this negative connotation that, like, you're invading somebody else's technology. What was the purpose of this hacker collective in Brooklyn? So... NYC Resistor is a really special place. You enter it and there's a laser cutter, there's a big table where there's lots of people working on on their laptops, there's soldering irons where people are assembling electronics, there's all sorts of tools and materials. A member of NYC Resistor can make anything. Our motto is we learn, share, and make things. When people think about a hacker, a lot of times they think about like, oh, somebody's breaking into my computer. But... I believe a hacker is somebody who's got a special uh, enthusiasm for figuring out how things work and using them in special ways. An example of somebody who, when we first started, we came out, our first model 3D printer was the cupcake. It was inexpensive, it worked, and it was great. But it was our first machine, so there was a, there could, there was a lot of room for improvement. Because we shared all the designs, people could hack on it. They could improve it. And they did. They built all these crazy adaptations. They, they took the Z stage, which is the part that goes up and down. They ripped the back off it. They put their own one on. And they could do that because they could print out replacement parts that improved the machine. Mm-hmm. And every time this happened, we celebrated it. We were like, cool. This person found a way of taking what we did and improving on it mm-hmm. and sharing back with the community. You met Zach Hokensmith and Adam Mayer, your co-founders of MakerBot at NYC Resistor, and you decided you wanted to make a go of this as a company, and you raised $75,000 from friends and family initially, and that $75,000 turned into $5 million of revenue. Were you surprised by the, the level of demand for this? 
Yeah, I mean, we started it off, and we were like, okay, this. When we started, we we kind of fooled ourselves, thinking, yeah, we'll just start this. This will be something we do. Maybe we'll do other stuff too. And then, as soon as we sold the first twenty in no time flat, we were like, okay, mm. now we got to make more. Mm-hmm. And so we spent that first three months prototyping and getting ready, and then uh, then we launched our product. Then we spent the next like nine or ten months just figuring out how to pack and ship, mm-hmm. and put labels on things, and count out nuts and bolts and stuff like this. How were you supporting yourself at the time financially? Oh, we were broke. We had we we weren't paying ourselves. Every time we got you know money, we were spending it on robot parts. I skipped rent one month just to just because I didn't have it. We were we're a committed group. We were really into it. To what extent did being broke scare you? Um. Well, being broke sucks. It means you can't take your girlfriend out to dinner, and it it uh, it's pretty stressful. Um. But it, you know, we, to counter that, we were, we knew we were onto something and we had to ride, we had to ride it as hard as we could and push it as hard as we could so we can get as many of them out there and change the world. You talk about being broke while you were trying to get the company off the ground and it was hard to not be able to take your girlfriend out to dinner. Your girlfriend at the time became your eventual partner and the mother of, of your child. How did you meet Keo Stark? We met playing Werewolf, which is a game where you try and use deceit and lying to to survive in a town of werewolves. And this is a real-life game. It's not online. And together you are a village, and you have to figure out, and there's werewolves in the village, and you have to figure out who they are, except you don't know who they are because they look like people. So you have to figure out who's lying. Was either of you a werewolf? Absolutely not. We were both villagers. I met Keo, and we were talking about trying to to effectively lie, trying to come up with strategies for that. And Keo's a horrible liar, and so it's uh, it, it, that was that was a nice way to kind of start with an honest moment about deception, I guess. Is there a community of werewolf players out there somewhere? Uh, werewolf is one of those games that's gotten popular on uh, like conferences. Mm-hmm. So after the conference, you'll get like. 10 or 12, 15 people together, and a bunch of drinks, and you'll sit around and lie to each other, see if you can figure out who's lying. Keo is an author, and she recently wrote a novel called Follow Me Down. She's also written a manual, a handbook called Don't Go Back to School. Keo did a lot of in- interviews with people to figure out how they learned things without going to school. Mm-hmm. So it's all about how to learn things without having to pay for it. You've created with Keo a manifesto of sorts called The Cult of Done. How do you live your life or how do you express this cult of done? There's some things like, you know, if you if you have an idea and you don't execute it within a week, throw it away. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Abandon it. Then there's things like done is the engine of more. So when you finish something, mm-hmm. it means you can do more. So finish more, finish more things so you can start more things. Another one is like everything is a rough draft. Don't you know? Don't don't strive for perfection. Just get it to a place where you're satisfied. 
I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Bree Pettis, the co-founder of MakerBot Industries, a company that makes open-source robots that make plastic objects. MakerBot's 3D printers produce objects used for designing, recreation, and practical life. So things like bathtub plugs, shower curtain rings, bottle openers. A MakerBot printer costs roughly $1,300. I want to talk some more about the varied applications of some of the objects that MakerBot produces. Sure. For instance, somebody made an engagement ring out of a MakerBot machine. What's that story? So there's a guy named Finflood, and he was going to Iceland the next day with his sweetie. And he thought, you know, it was Friday night, and he thought, maybe this would be a great time. This, this would be a beautiful place. Maybe I'll find a beautiful place. So go and pop the question. But I need a ring, and it's late and I'm leaving tomorrow. So he popped around to his local hackerspace and printed one out, and they went to Iceland, and he gave it, he gave it to her, and she said yes. And it's a really nice story, because it means like you can have a MakerBot and print out anything, really. That's one small example, but do you have like a larger mission or hope for the company? I mean, here's somebody who makes you know, an engagement ring, but what does this look like on a, on a larger scale? Or it might just be like you just want people to make stuff. Well, when we started, we saw those t- first 20 machines and we thought, okay, here's potential energy. This is going out there and people are going to use these machines to make anything they want. And now that we've got, goodness, 7,000 machines are out in the wild right now, 7,000 MakerBots, we're seeing what people are doing. Every day there's new things that people are, are making. You know, they're making cookie cutters, they're making robots, they're making characters, they're making remote control cars. The thing that's getting me excited these days is what will we do together? What can 7,000 MakerBots in the world do? One of the projects we're working on right now is called Project Shelter. We're making shells for hermit crabs because hermit crabs are facing a housing shortage. So we're helping them. What's wrong with the shells of hermit crabs now? Hermit crabs don't make their own shells. And humans take them away from the beach, and not a, uh, the snails that make the shells that hermit crabs like are, are not producing as many shells. So they're doing things like sticking their, their butts in bottles and sticking their butts in shotgun shells and stuff like this, and that's just wrong. People have uploaded different designs for shells because hermit crabs are kind of picky, and uh, it works. The, commu- you know, the community collectively are solving an ecolog- ecological problem. What are other examples? When Deepwater Horizon, the catastrophe that happened in the Gulf where they were drilling and oil was just flooding into the Gulf, uh, the Thingiverse community rallied together to try and figure out, okay, what's the problem? How can we help? I see, I'm really curious as the community grows to see what will, you know, not just what will one printer do, but what will 7,000 printers and their users do to change the world together. What is the Thingiverse? Thingiverse is a universe of things. It's a place to share your digital designs. So you can, if you if you design something, say you design a new type of bottle opener, you can upload it and share it and everybody can benefit. Another project that you've worked on in the past is an art project uh, where you exhibited works of art made by MakerBot uh, at the New Museum in New York City. Talk to me about that project. Um, yes. This, this was a project that you did with Zach Lieberman. Yeah. So Zach Lieberman and I went, went to Tompkins Square Park, and we t- 
took strangers and we set them down and we asked them to tell them who are the important people in your life. Immediately it got good when people tell, talk to you about who they care about and share the people who are important to them. They get emotional. And we caught that on video and we caught that with a 3D scanner. And then we printed out miniature heads about four inches tall of the people who had done this. And then we projected images of them talking on it. So in some ways, it was kind of like, you know that moment in Star Wars where Princess Leia goes, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope, and she's in 3D and she's projected. It was kind of like that. (laughs) I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Bree Pettis, co-founder of MakerBot Industries, a company that makes 3D printers. Speaking of the important people in your life, you became a father in 2011. And in the spirit of sharing your life on the internet, you talked about the hardship that you faced um, when your daughter was born prematurely and she was in the NICU for a couple of months. You blogged or wrote about uh, one particular incident when she was in the NICU and no one was paying attention. Can you describe that experience briefly? So hospitals suck. The internet hasn't arrived to hospitals. And the way that data gets transferred at hospitals is people work 12 hours because they're two 12-hour shifts. And then they, are, they stay a little bit longer than their 12 hours because the next person comes on shift. And they share everything that they've done in the last 12 hours the most with the next person. And that's the way that data transfer happens in a hospital. So I had a, so I had a baby named Nika. And She was born seven weeks early, which is really early, and she was two and a half pounds. So she had to go to the NICU, which is uh, where they put babies in little boxes and watch them. And the second night I came back, because they don't let you be there from, I think it's eight to nine, Mm -hmm. because that's their transition time where they're expected to share the data. And I arrived at nine, and the monitors were flatlined which means there's no heartbeat, no breathing, uh, no oxygen. And I was like, okay, before I completely freak out, I'm just going to check. And so I went over and I checked her pulse and I checked her breathing and she was breathing and there was a pulse. And I lo- started looking at, and I looked at the monitor and it looked, and it was clear it hadn't been hooked up for two hours. Hmm. And so I asked the nurse, I said, you know, this is why my baby hasn't been hooked up for two hours. And rather than saying, I'm sorry, let me fix this right now. This is horrible. She proceeded to make excuses about how overworked they were, how the technology isn't reliable, how the backup systems hadn't been in effect, and how hard it was to find good people. Making excuses. Making lots of excuses. And if she had just said, I'm going to fix this right now, would have been fine. But making excuses meant that these, you know, four layers of redundancy had all failed. Mm. And I was the only one who'd noticed it. And... I'm sure parents who are listening can imagine, you know, when you trust your baby to someone else and they don't let you be there. I was just, I got really mad. Anything that a maker bot could fix. You know what, though? When I was in the NICU, I was there for six weeks and I basically camped out there. And I, you know, I looked at all the technology there. The, the isolate, which is the box that the baby's in that also has a... You know, that also has a bunch of hookups and stuff like this for it and has air that you can pump in. You know, that costs like a lot of money, like $75,000 for that box. And I'm thinking, okay, I could do that for three and maintain all the functionality. 3000 Yeah. 
What I did in my six weeks of the NICU was just sit there and reverse engineer all the stuff in the hospital, thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I pay this much for it. Mm. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. My guest has been Bree Pettis, the co-founder of MakerBot. Coming up, we'll meet Mark Ramadan, co-founder of Sir Kensington's, a condiment company. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Boy! 